All right, so last we left off in the middle of chapter three of Megillas Esther, Haman was beginning his plot to wipe out, to annihilate the Jewish people. Um, to this point, as we mentioned last week already, we have the first chapter and the second chapter are really the setup, the remedy before the strike, where God puts everything in place to bring about salvation. Would the Jewish people be deserving of it? So chapter one is where Vashti, the queen, the queen of Persia, loses, is deposed. And chapter two is where Esther is putting her place. Esther is crowned as the new queen, as well as <clears throat> Mordechai saving the life of Ahasuerus. This is all preparation for the salvation that is to come. And then chapter three begins sort of the, the where things start to go downhill. Mordechai standing up for Jewish law, standing up for Jewish pride, will not bow to Haman. Haman uses this basically as an excuse to not just go after Mordechai, but to go after all the Jewish people. We left off, Haman had drawn lots to figure out when would be the ideal time to annihilate the Jewish people. Haman was a big believer in randomness, not much of a believer in God and order, a believer in randomness. Lots was the way to figure out the ideal day. And, uh, and even though he was drawing his lots in the month of Nisan, which is the first month, there's two ways to count the Jewish calendar, but we'll call it the first month. And he was hoping that the lots would come out as soon as possible so he could carry out his plan. But that's not how it worked. God had other plans for him. And actually, the lots came out almost as far away as possible, almost, almost a year later in the month of Adar. So it came out that the day that he would annihilate the Jewish people would be on the 13th of Adar, about 11 months later. So that's where we left off. He drew his lots, and now he has to go to King Ahasuerus, for whom he's the lead advisor, the prime minister, and he has to convince Ahasuerus to allow him to do what he wishes. So that's where we pick up. We're in chapter three, verse eight. And it reads as follows, again, using the translation on the source sheets, which comes from the Chabad website, Chabad.com. Um, it says, and Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and separate among the peoples throughout all the provinces of your kingdom, and their laws differ from those of every people, and they do not keep the king's laws. It is therefore no use for the king to let them be. And then actually, if we skip, the, I have a passage in the Talmud, but if we skip that for a second to verse nine, he says, if it pleases the king, let it be written, le'abedam, to cause them to be lost, to destroy them maybe, and that's going to be a word that needs interpretation. And I will weigh out 10,000 silver talents at the hands of those who perform the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Okay, we'll put aside the, 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 the money for now. But Haman has come to Ahasuerus and presented before the king of Persia. There is a nation, a certain people. In the Hebrew, actually, it's the word Am. Yeshno Am Echad. There is a certain nation who is scattered amongst you. They don't keep, they, they, they have different laws. They don't keep the king's laws, he claimed. And there's no use for the king to let them be. Now, beginning from here, we're going to have two divergent approaches in understanding the Megillah. And if we went with one, we'd kind of be missing out the other one. So we have to really try to view the Megillah through both, both approaches. It might hopefully won't get too confusing. And these two approaches deal with the following question. Did Ahasuerus know that Haman was trying to wipe out the Jewish nation? If you pay attention to this verse, it doesn't say anything about the Jews. It will later, but right over here, it just says, Haman said to the king, there's a certain nation, a certain people. 
So did Achashverosh know who Haman was talking about? Was Achashverosh in on the plan? Was he also looking to wipe out the Jewish people? So there's two approaches. One is the approach of many of the, what we call pshat, those who take the most literal approach, um, including in this case, the Malbim, who is a commentary we've been quoting a lot, the Vilna Gon, the Yosef Lekach, another commentary, and much earlier commentaries as well. Most of those are 17th, 18th, 19th century commentaries, but even much earlier ones, 16th century, 15th century commentaries also learn this way that Achashverosh didn't actually know who Haman was talking about. We'll delve into that a little bit more, but that's one approach. The other approach is the approach of the Talmud and the Midrash, which seems pretty clear that the, our sages of the Talmud and the Midrash understood that Achashverosh was all in on this plan. He knew exactly who Haman was talking about. Achashverosh despised the Jews as much as Haman did, and he was more than happy to give Haman uh, permission to go ahead and try to eliminate the Jews. So let's try to develop this together using the verses. And we'll start with the approach number one that Achashverosh did not know what was going on exactly. The Malbim asks a number of questions to, to point to, to kind of prove this point. Number one, he says, you know, how could a king even imagine doing this? And it would just take a nation from within his people and just wipe them out, annihilate them. It would just mess everything up for him politically. Okay, that's something that you can certainly argue on. But he asked that as he posed that as a question. He says, furthermore, if Achashverosh really had agreed to wipe out the Jews, so then when Esther will come later and say, there's someone who's trying to wipe me out, someone who's trying to destroy me, and, I, and what's Achashverosh's response? Me who zev ezehu, who is this that's trying to, to wipe you out? Really, you don't know? You don't know what's going on? What kind of a question is that? So says the Malbim, it seems he actually didn't know exactly what was going on. He didn't know. Furthermore, um, if he was all in, then why did he turn on Haman in an instant and say, oh, Haman, you're doing this to Esther, you know, you're going to be hung. If he, if he had agreed to the plan and he was happy for Haman to carry out this plan, then why does he just turn on Haman in an instant? And furthermore, the Megillah was written shortly after the story of Purim, while, while Mordechai and Esther were still in power. Mordechai was uh, the new prime minister in government. They wrote the Megillah. Achashverosh saw the Megillah, says the Malbim. He wouldn't have allowed a Megillah to be written that just calls him out for being this terrible king, right? So, so these are questions that the Malbim poses to kind of back up his position. And again, the position of many commentaries that Achashverosh didn't know that Haman was trying to wipe out the Jewish people. Now let's take a look at the verse and see how well it reads. So Haman said to King Achashverosh, verse eight, there is a certain people scattered and separate among the peoples. He didn't tell them who they were. It doesn't say. There's a certain nation. Now you'll ask, why did Achashverosh not ask who they were? Okay, it's a good question. We'll get to that in a moment. Right. But there's a certain nation. He didn't tell him who. He didn't tell it. Ahaman did not tell Achashverosh who he was talking about. And he said, and he said, by the way, why didn't he tell them? Why wouldn't he just say, I want to wipe out the Jews? Well, because Achashverosh respected the Jews. First of all, he had Mordechai. Mordechai was now one of his main advisors. Mordechai was sitting in the gig of the king. He knew Mordechai. He knew perhaps even that Mordechai was the one who raised his queen, Esther. He doesn't know that Esther's Jewish. He just knows that Mordechai raised her, took her in, but he, he likes Mordechai. So Haman doesn't want to say who he's talking about. He doesn't want to say 
that he's talking about the Jewish people, Mordechai's nation. So what does he say? He says there is a nation and they don't even have a name almost. They're so nothing to you. It's a certain nation. I'm not even going to name them. They're like so nothing, Haman says. Don't worry about who they are. And I'm going to ask you to wipe them out. Now, you might be concerned that there's, uh, you know, that you might say that they're not causing any problems. They live off to themselves. Nobody notices them. They have their own province. No, 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 no. They are scattered. They live amongst everyone. They are a problem. They're not living off to themselves. And you might say that they have, even if they're living among the provinces that everybody lives in, they might have their own neighborhoods. No, 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 no. They don't have their own neighborhoods. They are separate. Meaning, um, th that's maybe not the best translation because that makes it sound like they are separate. Miforad, again, another type of like spread out. They're spread out. That's really, they are separate from each other. Not that they're separate from the from nations. They are separate from each other. They're not all just living together and not bothering everyone. They are, they are a bother, Haman says. They are in the middle of everyone. And not only that, Haman says, they are, their laws differ from those of, the, of, of every people. They're so different from us. They do everything different. They have all these strange laws. They dress differently. And not only that, but they don't even keep the king's laws. Now, not clear what that's referring to, but that's what he said. This nation, he's throwing them under the bus. This nation, they don't keep the king's laws. And there's no use to let them be. They, you don't gain anything from them. You might think that you can benefit from them. You might think that they contribute to society. Haman says that uh, they, they don't contribute anything to you. There's no value in keeping them around. So that's why Haman then proceeds and he asks, if it pleases the king, let it be written le'abedam. So in verse nine, I put the Hebrew there specifically because the English was something like destroy. Now that's, Malbim does not learn and many don't learn that that's what it means to destroy. Actually, Haman wasn't saying that I want to destroy them. Haman was saying to Achashverosh, let's get them lost amongst the people. Let's assimilate them into our society. They keep all these strange laws. They do their own thing and they don't contribute because of that. Let's just assimilate them into our society. Let them be lost amongst our people, amongst all the other nations. Let Abedam, that they should be lost. And uh, that's what Haman told Achashverosh, right? That's not how what he's going to proceed to try to do. But right now he's just trying to convince Achashverosh to give him some power. So he says, we're going to try to make them lost, the Abedam. And... Uh, he does not tell him that he wants to wipe them out because that wasn't his claim. His claim was they're so different. Let's try to assimilate them into our society. And then he says, don't think it's going to be too expensive for you. You're going to have to hire people all over the nation. On the contrary, the people, if you read the verse again, verse nine, I will weigh out 10,000 silver talents into the hands of those who perform the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Okay, the Bible learns these words a little bit differently. The people will pay you to do it. People will be so excited to be able to participate in this project of ridding us of this terrible nation, assimilating them into our society, that they will pay you. It's not going to cost you anything. On the contrary, people will pay you to be able to do it. That is Haman's presentation. Um, according to the Malbim. And he doesn't make any mention of wiping them out or destroying them. That was not what he told Achashverosh was his plan. He was going to try to assimilate them. Um, Yosef Lekach, another one of the commentaries, adds when he was saying that they're scattered amongst the people, he was saying and they don't have any relationships with anyone. Nobody likes them. That was Haman's claim to Achashverosh. Again, without identifying who he was talking about, so that Achashverosh couldn't even ask him who he was talking about. He just makes the claim that they're of no use. Now, you might ask what I think would be the obvious question, which is, 
why didn't Ahasuerus ask him who he was talking about? So again, the Malbim says, he kind of made it seem like, oh, they don't even have a name, these people. They're so nothing. They're so, you know, insignificant. But Yosef Lekach adds another idea, and he says that Ahasuerus felt that he was just, and he didn't want to be biased. And it doesn't really matter who Hamang is talking about. I'm going to judge them without bias based on the facts, which he accepted from Haman because he trusted Haman. Haman's telling him, this is what they are. This is who they are. I'm not even going to ask you who they are. I'm not even going to ask you their name because then I might be biased in my judgment. Ahasuerus says, I'm going to be fair. If these are the facts, then your plan should proceed. And he doesn't even inquire as to who they are. And then he hands, he hands Haman in the next verse his ring. And then Haman goes off and makes his own, you know, kind of changes the plan, as we'll see in a moment. So that's the first approach. That's the approach of the many commentaries who assume that Ahasuerus did not actually know what nation Haman was trying to wipe out. The other approach is the approach of also of many, but in particular of the Talmud and the Midrash seem to go with this. And that is that Haman absolutely knew, excuse me, Ahasuerus absolutely knew who, we were, who he was dealing with. Let's just read the passage in the Talmud. It's in source number one here, that uh, how, they, how, how the Talmud breaks down this conversation. So it reads as follows, Megillah 13b, it's in source number one, verse eight. There is one people scattered. So that's from the verse. There is one a people scattered. Rabbah said there was none who knew how to slander like Haman. Haman was the best at slandering. He could just make anybody look terrible. And that's what he did. So he said to Ahasuerus, let us destroy them. Ahasuerus said, I'm afraid of their God, lest he do to me as he did to those who stood against them before me. In some versions of the Midrash, Ahasuerus went through like the whole history of the Jewish people. I know what happened to Pharaoh when he tried to start up with the Jewish people. I know what happened to your ancestors Amalek when they tried. I know what happened to Sancherev, Sennacherib, when he, right? he went through the whole history. I'm not starting up with them. Haman has to convince him. So what does Haman say? Talmud continues. Haman said, Yeshno. And the Talmud interprets that Yashnu, they're sleeping. They've been asleep with respect to the mitzvot. Their protection is from their observance of the mitzvot. And they're asleep on that. Now's our chance. We have a chance here. Akashverus said, but there are sages among them. Haman said, they are one people. They are Yeshno, they're sleeping. Amechad, they're one people. I think what he means is, Everybody's responsible for everybody. It's not enough that there's a few sages who are observing the mitzvah. If everybody else isn't, it's everybody's responsibility and we have an opportunity. Now then Haman continues and he says, perhaps you will say that I am making a bald spot in your kingdom. Meaning you don't want to have like this whole empty area was once full. Everybody's going to notice that. It's, you know, it's not going to look good. So he says, no, they're scattered among the peoples, right? The verse says they are scattered, Haman said. And perhaps you will say that there is benefit from them. No, they are miforad. Miforad, I said before, means um, also kind of scattered or spread out, separated. But the way the Talmud interprets it is the word miforad can be related to the word preda, which is a mule. They're barren like a mule. A mule does not produce. A mule is a, is a cross between a horse and a donkey, and it can't reproduce. And uh, they're like mules. They don't, they don't produce anything. Perhaps you'll say that there is at least a province that is filled with them. Therefore, the verse states that they are scattered in all the provinces of your kingdom. They're not in one place. I don't know exactly what he was trying to say there. And then he goes on, he says, and their laws are diverse from those of every people. What did he mean? They don't eat from our food. They don't marry our women. They don't marry their women to us. They don't keep the king's laws. He said they spend the entire year in idleness. They're constantly saying, 
Shehipehi, which is an acronym for Shabbat Hayom Pesach Hayom. Haman complains. They're always taking off. One day they say it's Shabbos. We can't work. The next time it's Pesach. They're always saying they need a day off, right? So he's zeroing in on, uh, he's, he's just uh, trying to label the Jewish people in this terrible light. And therefore he says, it's not, it does not profit the king to tolerate them, etc. So according to this passage of the Talmud, it's very clear, Haman, Achashverosh knew exactly who Haman was talking about. Yeah, and like I said, the Midrash says they had this whole back and forth conversation. Achashverosh said, yeah, but the Jewish people, you know, their God protects them. He protected them against Pharaoh and right, et cetera, et cetera. So they were talking about the Jewish people. There was no, that was clear. The Talmud also talks about how very explicitly, we mentioned it last week, that Achashverosh was like uh, someone with, uh, he, he had a pile of dirt. Haman had a hole to fill. He just wanted to get rid of the pile of dirt. Haman said, perfect, I have a hole to fill. So they were partners in this. They both wanted to get rid of the Jewish people. And that's the approach of the Talmud. And, uh, and in the commentary of Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kabetz, 16th century, um, called Mano Salevi. So he very much wants to defend the position of the sages against those who disagree. And one of the points that he makes is he says that this isn't necessarily a proof, but he just, he, 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 he questions the other approach. And he says, the more you say that Ahasuerus wasn't a part of it, the more you're diminishing the miracle. You know, if it may be hard to understand how Ahasuerus could have had such an about turn, you know, changed, turned on Haman, changed his mind, it's true. But that was part of the miracle. And the more you say that Achashverosh was not a part of this, then the less of a miracle is. He says, are you surprised if Achashverosh didn't even know what was going on, that when he finds out he's going to be upset with Haman? If, if, if Haman totally forged the, the words and the, the, the message of Achashverosh and wrote and sent messages out that were not what the king had agreed to, and then the king finds out, don't you think that he would turn against him? So you're diminishing the miracle by taking such an approach. Now, that's not a proof, but he feels that this whole story is being told because of the great miracle. There's no need to try and diminish it. Um, furthermore, he says that despite this, despite the fact that Ahasuerus knew who we were dealing with, when it actually came time for Haman to make his sales pitch in verse nine, he says still, let it be written in the Abedam, to make them lost. And according to Mano Salevi, that means let's empty them of their, of their wealth. Let's make them poor. It doesn't mean to destroy them, even though Ahasuerus wanted to destroy them. But Haman was saying, let's start with this, because as, as we saw, Ahasuerus was still quite frightened to take on the Jewish people. He knew their history, he knew our history, and he didn't want to take them on. So even in this approach, it's still, at first, Haman kind of played it down. We'll take their money, and they'll probably try to fight back, and then we can fight them. That was, that's how the Manos Alevi learns that verse. Now, either way, I think, we see Haman is going after, he's using, he's labeling the Jewish people as a people who they're distinct, they're separate, they're different. Now you'll recall that we learned that one of the reasons why the Jewish people attended the great feast of Ahasuerus was for this very reason. They felt we can't be different. We can't be different. They're going to look at us. We're, they're so different. And, and they were trying to actually make themselves more similar to blend into the society. And what the message of this is, was and is, is that the more we try to make ourselves similar, the more 
that the Gentiles will see us as different. In other words, the way it's presented, not, in, not with regards to the Megillah, but actually with regards to the Jews in Egypt, the Beis Alevi, Rabbi Yosef Dov Salavechik, the 19th century, he writes that the more that the Jewish people are supposed to be distinct. God says, I am separating you from the other nations. And the more we try to make ourselves similar, so if we're not going to separate ourselves, then God will make sure that we are separate and the nations will turn against us and separate us, single us out. So the more we try to be similar, that's when they start to notice the differences and point them out. And this seems to be another example of that. The Beis HaLevi was saying about it in Egypt, the Jews did certain things at the beginning of their sojourn in Egypt to try to make themselves similar to the Egyptians. And that resulted in stricter measures from the Egyptians singling them out more. And similarly here, and it's something that has occurred at other points in our history as well. So continuing in verse 10, so now the king's response. What is Ahasuerus' response? And the king took, off it, the ring, took his ring off his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadasa, the Agagite, the adversary of the Jews. So now the Megillah identifies Haman as the enemy of the Jews that he was being handed this, uh, this power. And, uh, and again, based on our two approaches, we can understand this in different ways. One is, if we understand that Ahasuerus knew exactly what was going on. So he said, great, I can't be the one to deal with the Jews. I'm the king. If uh, people, if I wipe out one nation on my own, it's not going to look good in my position of power. But if one of my officers does it, if it's his project, so that's fine. And that was what he wanted. That's what Ahasuerus wanted. So he was more than happy to hand this power over to Haman. Why? Because Haman was the enemy of the Jews. And that was exactly what Ahasuerus had been waiting for. That's again with the understanding that Ahasuerus knew exactly what was going on here. And the other approach, and hopefully it won't be confusing where we're too confusing as we bounce back and forth. And the other approach where Ahasuerus did not know that Haman was talking about the Jews. So the Megillah is actually showing us that he was not involved. He said, I trust you, Haman. You say there's some nation that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be assimilated, that doesn't fit in. Okay. Here you go. Here's the ring. Here's the power to put out a uh, to put out a a proclamation to the nation, to the people of the kingdom. However, you want to deal with it, and uh, and the king said to Haman, verse eleven: The silver is given to you, and the people to do to them as it pleases you. You could do you you. It's up to you to to figure out how how best to deal with this problem, but you can figure it out. That's how, according to the Malbim, he says, first of all, he says, don't worry about the money. I'm happy to fund this project. It sounds very important. You know, you can, I'll, I'll, I'm happy to fund it. And second of all, you do it as, as it pleases you. Again, Ahasuerus doesn't know that Haman's going to wipe them out. All Haman said was, I'm going to assimilate them. We're going to melt them, create a melting pot society where, uh, where the Jews forget who they are and they blend into Persian society. Um, and yeah, fine. And again, as we mentioned, he doesn't ask who it is because that shows a lack of honor on behalf of the king. It doesn't matter who they are. If they're wrong, they're wrong. If they deserve this, if they need to be dealt with, be dealt with. I don't want to sound biased. I'm not even going to ask you who it is that we're talking about. And again, we see the says the Yosef Lekach, we see the tremendous miracle that occurs as a result because we see how much Ham Ahasuerus trusted Haman. He just gives him all this power. He says, You know what you're doing, you can deal with it. He trusted him to the you know to the nth degree, completely trusted him. And yet he's able to turn on him miraculously just a short time later. And really, as we'll see in a matter of days, the, the, the Purim story from here until Haman's, Haman's death is actually just 
about three days. Then we have the rest of the year play out after that. But it's a very quick turnaround. But we'll talk more about that probably in the next class. Okay. Um, just an interesting little uh, gematria. So the, the, the verse in Hebrew, when it says the silver is given to you, it's in Hebrew, it's hakesef nasun lach, the money, hakesef. And the, the Midrash points out that the word hakesef, the money, is the same numerical value as the word ha'etz, the tree, or the gallows. So while the king, the king said, said, the money is given to you, but the king, the other king, the king of kings, God, was at the same time saying, the gallows are given to you. Here you go. This is the beginning of the end for you, Haman. Ha'etz. That's what he's going to be hung on, on the tree, on the, on the, on the gallow. So at the same time, he is being God. There's like a, there's a Ruach HaKodesh here. There's a, a uh, Holy Spirit coming out, God's Spirit sort of saying, this is also the beginning of your end, Haman. Um, fine. And, and going back, just going back to the other side again, the Manos Alevi, the, the approach of the sages, which is that Achashverosh was fully aware that we were talking about the Jewish people. So this is where he says, go ahead, Haman. This is where he gives his full permission. Don't just, you only want it to start with the money, the Abedam. Do whatever is good in your eyes. You can do whatever you want here. It's whatever pleases you, they're yours. Okay, what does Haman do? He doesn't do what he told the king he was going to do. Verse 12, and the king's scribes were summoned in the first month on the 13th day thereof. So it is the, the 13th of Nisan. Sorry, I think last week I said 14th of Nisan. It's the 13th of, I don't remember what I said, but it's the 13th of Nisan. And, uh, and he, he summons the scribes and it was written according to everything that Haman had ordered to the king's satraps, which I don't know what that word means, but it means officers of some sort, uh, um, to the governors. These are different types of leaders who were over every province and to the princes of every people, each province according to its script and each people according to its tongue. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and it was sealed with the king's ring. And the letters shall be sent by the hand of the couriers to all the king's provinces. And what are those letters going to say? much more than what Haman had told Ahasuerus. Haman has those letters written and they say to destroy, kill, and cause to perish all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, on one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and their spoils to be taken as plunder. The copy of the writ was for an edict to be given every province, published to all the peoples, to be ready for that day. Now, the commentaries tell us here that there are actually a number of different letters being sent out. So, again, working with approach number one, that Ahasuerus was not aware of what was going on here. Ahasuerus just gave Haman permission to try to assimilate the people. Haman doesn't do that. He changes the plan. He sends out a letter to destroy the people, to destroy the Jewish people to wipe them out, annihilate them. But he actually sends two different kinds of letters. There's one letter that's referred to in verse 14 um, to be given in every province published to all the peoples. This is for the common man. And it says to be ready for that day. The average citizen got a letter that said, be ready on the 13th of Adar. Something big is coming. It may have said there's going to be a battle. We're going to be wiping out a people. It didn't say exactly what was going to happen. It said, be ready. Get your weapons ready. Sharpen your knives. Sharpen your swords. Get ready for that day. That's what he sent to the common person. Separately, before that, it says he sent, in the first, in verse 12, it said, to the king's satraps, to the governors of every province, to the leaders, to the governors, he sent letters that said exactly what was going to happen. Now, even in this, we have diverging understandings in the commentaries. According to the Malbim, those were sealed with the king's seal. 
And they said, those were the letters that would identify who would be annihilated on that day, but they were not to be opened. They were sealed with the king's seal, not to be opened until that day. Now you can't send such letters to everybody because everybody's gonna open them, but you could send them to the governors. And the governors were told, this letter is to be opened on the 13th of Adar that day, and everybody will then learn who it is that we're going to be wiping out. Others understand, like Yosef Lekov, no, no, he told the governors exactly what was going on. They knew. The people, the commoners didn't know. And the reason why, what's the big secret? So Haman, number one, he doesn't want this gang back to Ahasuerus, but also he doesn't want the Jews to know about it. Because if the Jews find out that Annihilation Day is in 11 months from now, well, they're not going to be around 11 months from now. They're going to pack their bags and run away. Or they'll prepare themselves, you know, in, they'll strategize, they'll figure something out, they'll fortify themselves. Haman does not want them to know what's going on. So he rather prepares um, these secret letters. He doesn't, or he doesn't say everything in the letter. You're going to find out. And you'll notice that he summons them right away. He wants to do this quickly before Ahasuerus has a chance to change his mind. And, and it's going to be all in one day. That way it's, it's quick and, uh, and you know, nobody can escape. Every, this, this will be the most effective means of annihilating the Jewish nation. And, uh, and that's, that's the approach again of the Malbim and of Yosef Lekach that Haman, that, that Ahasuerus was not fully aware of everything that was going on here. Um, and others, the other approach, that of the sages, is that no, the letters were very clear exactly what was going to happen, exactly who was going to be annihilated on that day. And the Midrash actually quotes the whole letter that he wrote and slandered the Jewish people again to all the nations. You know, if you want to, if you want to fire people up to go after the Jews, so you have to, you have to know what to say. And Haman knew what to say, similar to, as, to how he, he, he reported slander to Ahasuerus. So he slandered to the people. These people, you know, they're, they're useless. They're crazy. They're, they're to our detriment to have them around, et cetera, et cetera. And he was able to rile up the people. And the Midrash says, actually, that there were, there were enemies of the Jews who didn't wait. They started fighting right away. There were people would come to the market and someone would steal everything from him. He's like, I'm good. you're going to be killed tomorrow anyways. I mean, I can take what, you know, I can, I can beat you up now and take, take, take your things. And those, again, these few days, possibly longer, but these few days already, things were immediately started to get out of hand. That's how the Midrash um, records it. Okay, um, verse 15, the couriers went forth in haste by the king's order and the edict was given in Shushan the capital and the king and Haman sat down to drink and the city of Shushan was perturbed or the word in Hebrew is navocha, they were confused maybe. So the couriers go out, the letters go out and now Haman sits down to drink with the king. Now the Malbim says, you see from here, that the king was not in on this because the king would not sit down to drink. Nobody sits down to drink after they have sentenced any person to death, certainly not an entire nation, did not sit down to drink. The Yosef Lekach comments here, fascinating. He says, you know why Haman and Ahasuerus sat down to drink? This was part of Haman's plan. Haman wanted to keep Ahasuerus occupied while the couriers were leaving. Because if Ahasuerus was free and available, then somebody might get wind of the plan and come busting in and, uh, and report it, and, and Ahasuerus would cancel the whole thing. So Haman deliberately invited, you know, said, let's, let's have a party. They would play music. They wouldn't be able to hear the, anything that was going on in the streets. The mourning, the, the screams that were going on in the streets as people started to find out about this. And this way he would keep. Ahasuerus occupied. And the verse says that the city of Shushan was 
all confused. There was confusion in the street. It could be that the confusion was because people couldn't, they couldn't believe it. The Jews couldn't believe how could it be? How could it be that our, our, uh, our king will turn on us like this? This is assuming that they knew right away. How could it be that our king would turn on us like this? Or the confusion was there were all just opposite types of sounds in the streets. There were those who hated the Jews were celebrating. They heard about this edict and they said, let's celebrate the end of the Jews. And the Jews were mourning, they were crying. So there was this great confusion in the city of Shushan as word started to spread because you had just opposite emotions going on, opposite sounds. And again, Ahasuerus though, um, Ahasuerus is occupied, preoccupied with his party to really figure out what's going on. Um, alternatively, if we understand that there was, this was all a big hush-hush and not everybody really knew what was going on, well, that was the confusion. The confusion was simply, all these letters are going out. They just say, be ready for this day. We don't even know what's going on. It's so confusing. There was great confusion due to that. And that concludes chapter three. Haman's plot is now in place. So now enter Mordechai once again and Esther. Chapter four, verse one. Mordechai knew all that had transpired and Mordechai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. He knew all that had transpired. What did he know? How did he know? So if we understand like the first explanation that nobody really knew what was going on because the letters just said, be ready for this day and didn't say what was going to happen. Or they said, be ready for battle for the 13th of Adar, but nobody knew for what, who, for who, who was going to be attacked. And the letters that actually said, so were sealed and you weren't allowed to open them according to Malbim. They were, they, they, they were sealed with the king's seal. Wait till 13th of Adar to open these to discover exactly who's being annihilated. So how did Mordechai know? So how did Mordechai know? So it's possible. Some understand Mordechai knew through prophecy. Mordechai had, Mordechai was a prophet. God revealed to Mordechai what was going on. He revealed everything, the whole plan. And that was how Mordechai was able to intervene. That is one way to understand this. I'm sorry, all my sheets here printed out of order. So I'm just trying to find the right pages. Okay. Um, <clears throat> furthermore, um, the way that, yeah, so, so that's how, how Malbim assumes and how Rashi actually assumes is that he, he experienced a prophecy here. Um, and others say Mordechai just figuring out, you know, he, he put two and two together. He knew Haman was involved in this. He knew he had angered Haman. He knew that he was involved. He knew, he knew his own relationship with Haman. He knew that Haman hated the Jews and he was able to figure out if it says there's going to be a people that's going to be destroyed, Mordechai knew exactly who that was talking about. He also felt responsible because he is the one who upset Haman most recently. And he rent his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the midst of the city and cried a loud and bitter cry. The commentary say here, he wasn't mourning at this point. This was all a way of prayer. Um, he rent his clothes, not in mourning, but to remove them as fast as possible to be to don sackcloth, which apparently is a way of, of humility and decide and, and prayer. And he goes out to the city. He wants to spread the word. He goes out into the midst of the city and he, and he cries out to the heavens and he begins to pray. And he came up as far as the king's gate for one may not enter the king's gate dressed in sackcloth. And then he comes as far as the king's gate. Previously, he had been able to go into the king's gate. That was his position. But now he can't go in because he's dressed in sackcloth. Now, why did he not, if he wants to, he's, he's approaching the king's gate because he wants to get the message to Esther about what's going on. 
So why did he not first go to the king's gate and only afterwards don sackcloth? So the explanation that Yosef Lekach gives, it's a beautiful explanation. He says that Mordechai was following the ways of Jacob, of Yaakov, of, you know, Jacob, our forefather. You know, when Esav, Yaakov's brother, is approaching, so Yaakov is frightened. So he makes plans. He does three things. He prays, and he prepares gifts for Esav to try to appease him, and he prepares his family for what to do in case Esav attacks. But what does he do first? He prays first. So while we're all supposed to put in our own effort and not completely rely on God, we are supposed to do a certain level of hishtadlut, of putting in our own effort. But we first pray. We first turn to God that our efforts should be successful. That is what Yaakov did. And that is what Mordechai did over here. Mordechai said, I'm not going to first go to Esther and try to intervene. I'm going to first pray. Don my sackcloth. My first act will be prayer. And then, and then I'll go to the king's gate and try to intervene. So fascinating other explanation offered by Mano Salevi is that Mordechai went up until the king's gate and passed because he wanted to get arrested. He, was, he knew you're not allowed to enter with sackcloth. He wanted to bust his way in there. And that way he would get arrested. He'd get dragged to the king and he would be able to plead his case to the king. Now, I didn't see if he goes on at some point and explains why that didn't end up happening, but that's what he comments over here, that he, that he suggests that he deliberately dressed in a way that was illegal. He wanted, well, one, one, actually he adds one more point, which is that, that since Mordechai and his people were now sentenced to death, so they were, so, so somebody who's sentenced to death is not allowed to go before the king. So he was trying to push his way in um, and he couldn't go on his own, even though he had his connections, but now it's too late. Now he was sentenced to death. He couldn't go on his own. So he would try to bust his way in, get arrested, get dragged before the king, and then he could plead the case. It's an interesting uh, novel, novel explanation. Okay. Um, Okay, verse three continues, and in every province, wherever the king's orders and his edict reached, there was great mourning for the Jews and fasting and weeping and lamenting, sackcloth and ashes were put on the most prominent. So everybody is mourning and fasting, fasting and lamenting, but fasting would be in prayer. How did everybody know? How did word get out? So either Mordechai was able to spread the word once he knew. Alternatively, some suggest that if we understand that the governors did know, if we take the approach that when of Yosef Lekach, that even if the, the, the common person didn't know what was, who, who was going to be annihilated, but the, the governors knew, the letters to the governors said who was going to be annihilated. Well, the Jews had friends in high places. And those, some of those leaders, some of those governors who knew told the Jewish people what was coming. And, uh, and that way they, they, they knew and they were, they mourned and they davened, they prayed. Okay. Verse four and Esther's maidens and her chamberlains came and told her the queen was extremely terrified and she sent clothing to dress Mordechai and to take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept it. He wanted her, Mordechai to be able to come into the, within the gate, put on clothing, even over your sackcloth. Mordechai would not accept it. He didn't want to even take one break, one moment off from his praying, which he felt he needed to be doing in sackcloth, and he would not accept the, the, the clothes that Esther had sent. Five, then Esther summoned Hasach, one of the king's chamberlains, to be appointed before, and she commanded him concerning Mordechai to know what this was and why this was. She sent to Mordechai, what's going on? So Hasach went forth to Mordechai to the city square, which was before the king's gate. Mordechai told him all that had befallen him and the full account of the silver that Haman had proposed to weigh out into the king's treasuries on the Jews' account to cause them to perish. Again, Mordechai somehow knows all the details of what's going on, seemingly through divine providence, 
through prophecy, um, or again through deduction. I don't know how he would know about the money, but but the next verse, the copy of the writ of the decree that was given in Shushan, he gave him to show Esther and to tell her and to order her to come before the king to beseech him and to beg him for her people. Again, this would be which copy according to the Malbim? This would be the one that says there's going to be some nation. Just you know, that's what was being spread again around Shushan. You didn't have access to the to the special ones for the governors, but you had access to the regular the regular decree that was being spread around, promulgated, which was that on the 13th of Adar, somebody's going to be destroyed. So he sent Esther a copy of that and asked her to go and beseech the king. And Hasach came and he told Esther what Mordechai had said. And Esther said to Hasach, and she ordered him to tell Mordechai, I can't go see the king. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who comes to the king into the inner court who is not summoned, there's but one law for him to be put to death, except the one to whom the king extends the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been summoned, or let's call it, and I have not been summoned to come to the king these 30 days. So Esther says, I can't go to the king. I can't go to the king. It's not going to help. It's not going to help. I can't claim that I don't know the law. Everybody knows the law, she says. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know, know this law. And not only that, not only that, it's for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. There's no exceptions to this law. Any man or woman who comes, there's no favoritism here. This is the law. You can't go to the king without being summoned. And except someone who extends the golden scepter that he may live, this, you are sentenced to death until the king gives you life. In other words, the king can save your life. But if you walk in there without, without permission, without being summoned, you're dead. Now the king can save you by extending his scepter. But once he extends his scepter, he just saved my life. I'm not gonna, I can't then turn around and ask him again to save more. He just saved me. But now the kicker, she says, and I have not been summoned to come to the king for 30 days. So why should I go right now? He's going to summon me any day now. Let me wait. And that way, I'm not risking myself. Let me go in a few days from now when he summons me. They told Esther's words to Mordechai. Verse 13, Mordechai ordered to reply to Esther. Do not imagine to yourself that you will escape in the king's house from among the, all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and rescue will arise for the Jews from elsewhere, and you and your father's household will perish. And who knows whether at a time like this, so I don't like this translation, I didn't notice it before. Let's read it as, and who knows whether it was for this time that you attained the, king, the kingdom. Who knows whether it was all for this, and doesn't this mean who knows? He says, it's obvious, he's saying. It's obvious, it's, it's for this that you have become the queen. And this is such an important series of verses. Um, Mordechai responds to her. He's responding to her as follows. Says the Malbim beautifully. Whenever we see something that is out of the ordinary, beyond nature, above nature. So we have to realize, we have to pay attention. This is God's intervention, that there's a purpose for this. This, there's, this is being done as a medium, as a, to assist, to allow for something important to happen. And he says, and he's, Mordechai recognized, there's only one reason why you have become queen, it's for something very important. And what can be more important than this? And he says, there's always something that God has prepared to save. Like we said, there's a remedy before the strike. God prepares the refua before the maka. He prepares the salvation before he strikes. Now, he doesn't just prepare one salvation, Mordechai says. If you don't step in, don't worry. The Jewish people will be fine. 
There's going to be another way. As long as we do what we need to do, as long as we pray and we do repent and we claim and we lay claim to our name as the Jewish people, I think that's a very important point, that we need to, we need to be the Jewish nation to be deserving of the promise to the Jewish nation of Jewish survival. As long as we do our part, salvation will come from somewhere else. Esther, if you don't intervene, don't, we're, we're going to be fine. You're the one that will probably perish as a result, because if you're not fulfilling your purpose there, then you're not, you, you, you're, you're not useful anymore, you know, to be harsh. So Mordechai says, it's all for this. It's all for this. This is what you've been put in that position for. Mordechai, it's hard, you know, in the moment to see it when you're living through it. But Mordechai recognizes you're in this place for a reason. And you need to, and now is the time to step up. But still, we can still ask, why not wait? Why not wait? Just wait three days. What's the rush? So Yosef Lakach explains that if you wait till you're summoned and then you make an ask, well, what does that show about what you're asking? You know, you get, you, you want something from a friend. If you wait till you're invited to their house to ask them, it doesn't seem so important. But if you call them up or you go and knock on their door, so then it's clear that this is important. So Mordechai says, no, you have to go when you're not summoned. If you wait until you're summoned, it's not gonna seem so important. Go now, put your life on the line to go and ask for it. If you are risking your life to go and make this request, that Akashverish will appreciate, that he'll understand that this is very important. I think this is a lesson for us for prayer. If we have something we wanna pray for, if we say, I'll, I'll pray for it, Later, I'll pray for it on Yom Kippur. I'll wait till Rosh Hashanah, right? No, no, if it's so important, ask for it now. Pray for it now, don't wait. That was that was Mordechai's message to Esther. Ask for it now, don't wait. If you wanna show that it's important, put your life on the line, go in there and make your ask. So Esther accepts Mordechai's words. And she orders a reply to Mordechai, verse 16, go assemble all the Jews who are present in Shushan, fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, day and night. Also I and my maidens will fast in a like manner, then I will go to the king contrary to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she says, we do have to do, make our preparations. We, I can't just bust in there today, but I'm not gonna delay until he calls me. We're going to fast for three days. It could be, we'll see, we'll have to look at the days if she went in before the three days were up or during those three days. But the Jewish people are going to take, accept upon themselves to fast for three days and three nights. Not straight. The Midrash says they ate before evening each night. And I will fast in a like manner. Just to end off, um, her, her words here, or go assemble all the Jews. Go and gather all the Jews in Shushan. These words are very important in the Megillah. Gather, gather the Jews, right? Gather the Jews. Why gather the Jews? So a number of explanations offered by Manos Halevi. Number one, Haman had said, the Jewish people are scattered. They're scattered, they're spread out. There's many things that Haman might have meant by this, but Number one, he meant they can't fight back. Don't worry, these are, these are easy pickings because they're scattered. They're, un, they're not united. So Esther says, we're, gonna, we're going to, to unite. We're going to join together. This will show that we are, first of all, able to fight back, which will put Ahasuerus on guard. Number two, it will show that Haman was lying. And if Haman was lying about that, then Ahasuerus might realize he was lying about other things as well. And finally, the last point, and perhaps most important, is that the Jewish people are at their strongest when they're unified. So Haman may have been saying they're scattered, they're unified, there's no achtut, there's no uni unity in the Jewish people. Esther says, in order to be forgiving in order to be the Jewish nation. We need to be, to be deserving of salvation. We have to be a nation. And to be a nation, we have to be united. Gather the Jews together for prayer, unite, and hopefully 
As a result, we can merit a salvation. And it concludes, so Mordechai passed and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. He went, goes and gathers the Jews for prayer. And we'll see what happens next week. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rabbi Shams. Thank you very much.